Thank you very much for that. They wrote me this week and wanted to know about the theme so that they could blend the music with the message. And I was amazed when I was in here earlier listening to what God had been preparing for us. I always am happy when I see how he mixes these things together and takes all the threads and makes a fabric that declares his glory. I am so happy to be here. I think this is my 26th year of coming to Hume Lake. I even knew Kenny Poor. He used to always call me in the middle of the night and ask me where he could find a C.S. Lewis quote. It's crazy. <laughs> I was sitting in church. Um, I go to a church that's pastored by my son. And I was sitting in church. He was off speaking someplace, and we had a guest speaker. And this guest speaker in the midst of his message said, I remember when I came to Christ. I was a high school student at Hume Lake. We don't know what's going to happen in any given moment of our life, but we know there were moments that occurred before we got to this place. There are moments that will follow, and maybe one day there will be somebody here who will be influenced by a life that was at Hume Lake. I'm just grateful to be here. Our theme for the week is the love of God, and I'm taking everything from 1 John. If you have your Bibles, please bring them whenever we meet. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. I read lots of versions. I've finished my 54th read through the Bible this year and the New Testament 38 times besides that, the Greek Bible twice. I read different versions because sometimes translators try to understand the text. They might use different words, and I think it smooths out the wrinkles if you read different versions. But the New American Standard I go back to over and over again. You know why? It was the first Bible handed to me as a new Christian, and that's the one I think I... It's like, it's like uh, uh, comfort food for me. So anyway, um, I'm going to read it in just a moment. But the theme, the love of God, chapter 1, this morning we're going to talk about the love that pursues. Tonight, the love that nurtures. Tomorrow night, love that is unconditional. And then love that triumphs and love that assures. And that's where we're going this week. Let's read the passage, let me pray, and let's get into the text. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And this is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we worship you that you are the God who pursues us. 
We want to understand that a little bit better because sometimes we do hide from you. Sometimes we do run from you. Sometimes we forget that no matter how messed up we are, we have never been able to run beyond the scope of your great love for us. Please, Father, this day, take this text and in the power of your Holy Spirit, mediate it to each of our hearts that we might understand this a little bit more clearly. I know, Father, it's nonsense to think that one person could stand up and speak in, full, in a room full of people, every one of whom has hearts filled with different joys and different challenges. It's ridiculous to think that the crumbs of one offered could touch each heart. And yet once your son took five loaves and two fish, just crumbs, and he blessed them and multiplied them and distributed them, and everybody left satisfied. Would your Holy Spirit please do among us this morning something like that miracle? Would he take the crumbs that are offered and multiply them and bless them? That every person in here today would hear something that said, that was for me. That was for me. And in hearing that, may they have the affirmation that you not only love us generally, you loved each one of them particularly and gave him or her what they needed to hear this day. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. God is love. It says it twice in John, 1 John chapter 4. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. It's echoed throughout scripture, but God proved his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The story of God's pursuit of lost humanity and his willingness at all costs to do all that was necessary to reconcile us to himself is the greatest story ever told. And it's the story told over and over again in every culture throughout the ages. And I doubt whether any halfway conscious person could avoid being moved by it. It's everywhere, reverberating. Everybody was talking about going to the new Top Gun movie. I love airplanes. I'd go just to see the planes. But I go to the movie, and lo and behold, I'm sitting there, and the gospel's reverberating through that movie. Here's a guy who was the, the Top Gun pilot 30 years earlier, and he's now doing a, um, a test pilot work in Edwards Air Force Base, and he's called back to the old group. And when he arrives, they don't recognize him, and they throw him out of the bar. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, it says. <laughs> and they find out this is their teacher, and they've got an impossible mission. And the people running the thing don't care if these guys die, but the Tom Cruise character says, I care. I came to save their lives. Hear anything sounding familiar there? And he ends up, he puts his life in harm's way, and it looks like he, he dies saving one of his men. But lo and behold, he's, he, he doesn't die, so there's a little bit of a resurrection theme in there too. And the other guys put their lives in, in, in harm's way for some of their friends, and they copy what they saw their leader do. Wow. It's interesting. The story shows up everywhere. If you read the book, if you saw the movie, if you saw the musical Les Miserables, here's a guy who's a criminal. The injustice of his society put him in jail for uh, stealing a loaf of bread for his sister. He's 19 years hard labor, but there's a priest, a bishop, who in Christ-like manner rescues him. 
and deploys him. And he becomes a person who lives a Christ-like life, reaching out to other people who are miserable. Stories everywhere. Tale of Two Cities, Sidney Carton lays down his life to save Charles Darnier in that Charles Dickens novel. Brothers Karamazov, Alyosha goes with his brother um, and, and, and gives up his life to serve him. Um, it, it, it's echoed through every, every area of life. You, you think about your childhood. Remember the stories, the fairy stories? So many of them have the motif. There was a king and a queen, and they were barren, and they couldn't have a child. And lo and behold, she becomes great with child. And the baby's born. She's usually a girl. And at the christening, somebody's overlooked in the uh, invitations. And so this wicked person comes and pronounces a curse on the child at birth. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and it can only be a broken curse if a prince from a distant land comes and either lays down his life or something like that to vanquish the foe. It's, it's, it reverberates in children's literature. Matter of fact, I, I remember when our kids were little, we never let them watch TV during the week. But on the weekends, we'd sometimes watch Walt Disney films with them. One time we watched The Jungle Book, right? Rudyard Kipling. And here's Mowgli, the boy. He's lost from his parents. He's raised by Baloo the bear, Bagheera the panther. Um, the, the tiger, Shere Khan, wants to kill the man-child. And everything is tension building up to the moment when finally the event occurs and Baloo the bear lays down his life to save his friend. Bagheera the panther and Mowgli are walking off. They look over their shoulder at their limp friend. And Bagheera the panther says, greater love hath no man than this that he would lay down his life for his friend. And I'm going, that doesn't sound like Kipling to me. <laughs> I blew the dust off of my jungle book and I looked, I couldn't find it. You know where it is, it's in John 15. How did that get into a Disney movie? The story reverberates everywhere. Years later, I was asked to come speak to the Disney artists on Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's images of story. And I was told you can give them 45 minutes presentation, 45 answer uh, Q&A. It's not a place to proselytize. I don't have to worry about that. If I can get them into these authors, the authors will speak even after I'm long gone. But they said you can answer any question our ad artist asks just freely. 45 minutes are over, first question. Weren't Lewis and Tolkien Christians? Could you tell us about that? <laughs> Second question, isn't Aslan a Christ figure in the Narnian books? Third question, you know how Gandalf the Grey gives up his life saving the Fellowship of the Rings against the Balrog and comes back as Gandalf the White resurrected? Is that a Christ figure? Are there other Christ figures in Tolkien? Every story, every question went along that line. 20 authors come, or artists come up afterwards. The rest go back to work. And, they, and I looked at them. They're the ones asking the question. And they said to me, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yeah, are you? They said, yeah, why do you think we were asking you the questions? <laughs> and I said, okay, I've got a question for you. How did greater love hath no man than this? And he had laid down his life for a friend. Get in the jungle book. And they say, oh, we've been sneaking stuff in for a long time. <laughs> and other people have been sneaking other stuff in too. But it's easy to sneak things into these stories because the grand story, the story of God who pursues and comes and sacrifices in order that he might give life to others, it reverberates. James Cameron, I don't know if you've ever heard him interviewed before. It seems like every time I've ever heard him interviewed, he takes a swipe at Christians. Doesn't seem to like us. But all of his movies are the telling of this story. 
Terminator 2, an alien from another planet comes into our world and lays down his life to save the woman and her child. What's the next movie he made after Terminator 2? Spent more money than had ever been spent on making a movie in history. $200 million, the Titanic. And he's got to have some stuff, right? He's got his head on the block to investors. So he gets big box office draws. Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet. He's going to have great music. He gets Celine Dion at the time of her ascendancy. He's got special effects. He made a set a quarter the size of the original Titanic. But he needs a story to mediate it all through. What story does he tell? Our story. Here's Jack who wins a ticket to the doomed ship, incarnates himself on the ship, goes to the bow, says, I'm king of the world. There's a woman on that ship, and she is stuck in circumstances not of her making. Her father has died, left them penniless. Her mother says, I'm not going to be a washerwoman. Promises her in marriage to a guy who's the devil incarnate on that ship. She goes to the stern of the ship. She's going to throw herself off and take her life because she sees no way out. And Jack just happens to be there. They bring the old lady back after they discover the Titanic and they want to hear her story that night and she tells a story. They say, we don't even have his name on the ship's register. She says, isn't that amazing? But he saved me in every way. What's the next movie he makes? Avatar. And here's a guy who takes on the flesh of that world and goes into that world to save the people of that world. You know what Avatar means in Sanskrit? Incarnation. Incarnation. He came. You attend to this theme and you'll see it show up everywhere. C.S. Lewis, in his own spiritual pilgrimage, said he was deeply moved by this story everywhere he encountered it. But he hadn't become a Christian yet. He had worked through his atheism, his materialism. He finally becomes a theist and he says, I don't think I could know God personally any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare. He was on a late night walk with J.R.R. Tolkien at Addison's Walk by Magdalen College. And Tolkien says, you love the story of the gods coming down and giving of themselves to rescue those who are lost. How come you won't accept it at the one place where it was historically true? Lewis goes back to visit his analogy of Hamlet and Shakespeare, and he realized Hamlet could never break out of the play to get to know the author. But Shakespeare, the author, could have written himself into the play and made the encounter possible, and he says, in fact, that's what happened. He later writes an essay called, Myth Became Fact. The great story is real. It reverberates everywhere because we all want to know this story. It moves us so deeply And consequently, Lewis even got to the place where he wondered if God has this story broadcast in all cultures throughout all times. Because, as Lewis suggested, perhaps it is to the pagan cultures what the Old Testament was to the Jews, the tutor to lead them to Christ. I was giving a bunch of lectures up in Alaska. They wanted lectures on C.S. Lewis. I thought, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to read a little bit about Alaska, though. See if I can weave in some of those threads in the discussion. And so I read John Muir's diary of when he first went to Alaska in the 1870s. I don't know about what you know of John Muir. You know why he went to Alaska in the 1870s? He was on an evangelistic missions outreach to the Sitka and Stikine tribes with a man named S. Hall Young, who was a missionary to that region. 
I read Hall Young's book. I read Muir's book, and they are in sync. And Muir makes this observation that when they got to the tribes, the tribal people, 30 years before they got there, there had been a war between the Sitkas and the Stikine tribes. And the Stikine tribe goes, uh, leader, chief, goes to the Sitka tribe chief, and he says, we got to stop the war. It's going to be devastating for all our people. They won't have time to dry their salmon and get their food provisions ready for the hard winter that's coming. And the Sitka chief said, you're right, but your tribe has killed 10 more of our tribe than we have killed of yours. The Stikine chief said, you're right. And my life is worth 10 of my men. And he laid down his life for his men. And Muir said, 30 years after that happened, we got there. They already knew the story. But they didn't know that the story was fact. And when they told them about the atonement, about what Jesus did, these people embraced it quickly because God had already been working to reach those people, like he's constantly working to reach people around the world with this great story. So John, in this epistle, he then says, what was from the beginning? This was, this was in the plan from the beginning of history. It says in the Bible, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world in 1 Peter. God, when he created, knew fully what he was up to. He knew fully what would happen. He knew fully what it would cost him. In light of that, you could almost say Genesis 1.1 is the greatest love verse in the Bible, that God did it knowing. And Adam and Eve sin, and what does he do? The God who pursues goes to them. They're hiding behind a bush and with fig leaves. Uh, what good would that do? But he pursues them as he pursues each of us. And Cain... Cain's got a bad attitude. God comes to him in the midst of his bad attitude. Why are you angry? If you do well, it will go better for you, but sin's crouching at the door. Cain slays his brother, and God comes to him. Where's your brother? God offers him a means of grace. And Cain, it says in, in Genesis 4.16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Nod means wandering. He chooses wandering and aimlessness over stability of relationship with the God who pursues. God came to Noah and through his preaching to those who lived in his day before the flood. God never stopped loving them. He pursued Abraham and the patriarchs. Remember when Jacob had the big falling out in his family and he goes running off? He has to sleep in the wilderness, uses a stone for a pillow. He has a dream that night of the angels ascending and descending. And what does he say when he wakes up from that dream? God is in this place. I didn't even know it. Where are some of the places where you find yourself and you say, where's God? He's there. Whether you're aware of it or not, because he is the God who pursues, who loves you, and who's after you. You, you, you go throughout the scriptures and you'll see the sinning society continues to have the prophets send to them because the sinning society gets to discover though they have maybe given up on God, he has not given up on them. And matter of fact, there's this really great passage in Matthew 23 where Jesus reveals this in an incredible way. It's where he's talking about the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And seven times he recounts things where they're messed up. 
And then he says in the seventh one, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you build shrines for the prophets, testifying to the fact that it was your fathers who killed the prophets. Who are you going to find to rescue you from hell, he says. Next verse, Jesus says, Therefore, I will keep sending you prophets. I will come to you. You matter to me. I want the best for you. And it's at the end of that chapter where he says, over Jerusalem, 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 you who stoned the prophets and killed those who were sent to you. How I wanted to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not let me. I knew a pastor once, I heard him preach on that passage, and, 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 and he said, I, I don't know if I like that. You know, I gather you like a hen gathers its chicks. He says, if he's going to use an animal, I wish he'd use a lion, you know, or maybe an alligator or something like that. I'm going to protect you. A bear. If he's going to use a bird, how about an eagle or a bird of prey? Why does he use a chicken? And he said, because a chicken only has one thing it can put between itself and harm's way, its own body. And here comes a story and a fresh perspective, and we learn more about the heart of the God who pursues. The myth became fact. It's remarkable. And it comes with empirical evidence. We saw it. We heard it. We touched it. Remember years ago, there was a woman in one of my classes, and she said, my best friend's coming to be with me for her spring break. She goes to Brown University. I go, wow, Ivy Leaguer, that's pretty impressive. And we've been friends since kindergarten. She's going to come to my class, and I'm going to bring her to class. And I was wondering if you'd talk with her about spiritual things afterwards. She's an atheist and a materialist. I'd say, I'd be happy to. They come to class. We talk for a little bit. We talk about their friendship. And I say, so, so we talked about some spiritual things in class today. What do you think? She said, well, frankly, as a biochemist, because she told me she was a biochemistry major. Frankly, as a biochemist, and I thought it was a little premature. She was only a sophomore in college. <laughs> frankly, as a biochemist, I live by the principle. If I can't perceive it empirically, I won't buy it. I said, Really? That's the principle you live by. If you can't perceive it empirically, I repeated it back to her, you won't accept it. She says, yeah. I said, would you please set forth that principle empirically for me? I hope you see the prop problem. It's a proposition. It's not empirically verifiable. It has to be rationally set forth. And there's a contradiction inherent in it, and therefore it's not reasonable. And she saw it and freaked out. She said, nobody's ever pointed this out to me, why everybody at Brown University believes this. I said, no, there's Christians at Brown University too. You'd be surprised, they get everywhere. <laughs> I said, but just to be honest, I don't know materialists. I know some materialists who wouldn't go to the extreme you just went. And I said, John Polkinghorne, the physicist at Cambridge University, who also had a degree in theology and pastored a church while he was the president of one of the Cambridge University colleges, he was saying, if you ask the scientist, why is the kettle boiling? The scientist would say, heat from the burners agitating the molecules and causing it to boil at 100 degrees centigrade at sea level. He says, you can repeat it over and over again, but another answer to the question, why is the kettle boiling? I'd like a cup of tea. Would you like one too? And by mere scientific measurable investigation, you could never give the second answer. Mortimer Adler, the philosopher at University of Chicago, said in four generations we've gone to saying that which is measurable is that which is important for science to saying that which is measurable is the only thing that's important. And we have been diminished by that. And you know what? The God who pursues, he loves materialists too. Because if you're only going to believe it if it's empirically perceivable, John says, we saw it. 
We heard it. We touched it. You see, he even pursues materialists. He loves us. And John's pointing this out in this passage. And consequently, it, it's amazing to me. Jesus at Caesarea Philippi with his disciples in Matthew 16 says, who do people say I am? They gave him some answers. He says, who do you say I am? They say the Christ, the son of the living God. They believed it because they had seen it. They had heard it. And Jesus says to them in that gathering, there's a lot of things interesting go, that go on there, but in that gathering, he says to them, there's some among you who will not taste of death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John with him up until a mountaintop, and he's transfigured before them. And they hear God say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter, writing of that incident, in his epistles, said, we had the prophetic word made more sure. We were eyewitnesses. John writes about that too. He could have written about the resurrection eyewitness. They were there too. You want something to stand up in a court of law? You've got to have at least two witnesses. There were over 500 who saw the resurrected Christ. And John says this is empirically demonstrative. He pursues. He came to us. It's amazing. And so what do we see then as we get into the rest of this chapter? We see in chapter, in verses uh, 5 through 10, John begins to make application of the empirics that are here. He says, in him, in God, there was no darkness at all. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18 says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shines brighter and brighter until the full day. If you've come to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, that's just the beginning. You were born again. I hope you're not weighing in at your born again birth weight. I hope there's been some maturity. If you want to know about it, we'll talk about it tonight. The God who nurtures and is moving us and prompting us towards maturity. But nevertheless, there's five conditional clauses in this text to illuminate our way. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and in the darkness we're walking, we lie and do not practice the truth. Well, there, there, there may be lapses in your life. You may not do well all the time. I've mentioned this here at Hume before. I read through the Bible, the Old Testament. I remember when I first read the Bible from cover to cover as a freshman in college, and I felt it's something I should do as a Christian every year. You know, you can read through the whole Bible from cover to cover if you just read 13 minutes a day, which is less than the commercial time of one hour of television. Don't tell me you don't have time for this book. And don't tell me if you're honest and you know your struggles, you don't need this book. But I read through it from cover to cover, and I, I grew up in an environment where I thought you had to earn your way, and if you weren't perfect, you weren't going to get to heaven. And so I thought everybody in the Bible was perfect, and then I had the surprise of my life when I saw everybody in the Bible could have introduced themselves in some sort of recovery group. <laughs> Hi, my name is Noah, and I'm a drunk. Hi, my name's Abraham. I'm a liar and a coward. I'd tell a lie that would put my wife's life at risk rather than risk anything myself. Hi, we're Isaac and Rebecca, and we're dysfunctional parents. <laughs> Hi, my name's Jacob. I'm a cheater and a scoundrel. Hi, my name is Miriam. And I am jealous of my little brother Moses, and I'm a racist. I'm upset about his interracial marriage. Hi, my name's Aaron. I'm a religious leader, and I caved to peer pressure. Hi, my name's Moses. I'm a hothead and a murderer, and look at Moses. 
He's called the most humble man in the world, and yet he struggles with his temper problem all the way till it excludes him from getting into the promised land, and yet he was one of the greatest. Hi, my name's Naomi, and I'm bitter. Hi, my name's Samson, and I struggle with lust. Hi, my name's David. I'm an adulterer and a murderer. Hi, my name's Solomon. I'm supposed to be wise, but I'm extremely intemperate. If you read through the Bible ago, I was reading through the Proverbs, and I thought to myself, Solomon didn't do any of this stuff. His son Rehoboam didn't do any of it. But you know what? It's still inspired and God worked through fallen, broken people. And you read on through the Bible about all these people who could have been a recovery group. Hi, my name's Peter. I let down my best friend when he needed me most. Hi, my name's Thomas. I struggle with doubts. Hi, my name's Paul. I'm a Christian killer and I'm really hard to work with. And I know some people that look at those people and they say, wow, those guys were messed up. You know what I say when I read that? These are my people. I'm counted among them. I need what it talks about in this book. If we say we have fellowship with him and in the darkness we're walking, we lie and don't practice the truth, let's acknowledge the darkness and let's acknowledge our need. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The Greek word there for cleanses is an ongoing verb. It's not only a cleansing that we experience at the moment of our birth, but it's a cleansing that we discover throughout our walk with him. Our need for Jesus is never casual. It's always constant. My grandmother, we called her Gammer. When she was dying, I was at her bedside. We start sharing comforting verses. Oh, I am with you always. Or the one we were talking about before we came out. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Five negatives in the, the, those two phrases in the Greek. I will not, I will not leave you. I will not, I will not, I will not forsake you. We're talking about these comforting verses. And my grandmother says to me, oh, Jerry, you know the most comforting verse for me in the Bible? I said, no, what is it, Gemmer? He said, Romans 3.23. I go, What? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. She says, all have sinned. I'm not the only one. I find that very comforting. <laughs> His blood cleanses us and keeps cleansing. And every time he opens the door wider on our heart and we see there's still areas that need to be restored and cleansed, he is there because he's the God who pursues and it goes on another conditional clause. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The subtle ways of self-deception. And the subtlety grows till we are blind spiritually. And we even see it in the nonsense of our culture. Have you ever thought we would live in a day when things that are so clearly sin are so justified and rationalized? We were talking a little bit before we came out about certain movies you can see. Remember It's a Wonderful Life? When all of a sudden he, he discovers what life would be like had he not been born and all the bad things that are going on in the culture, doesn't mean anything because those bad things are typical in our culture now. Uh, back to the future, when Biff goes ahead to the future and they want to show visually all the corruption that takes place, those things are typical in our culture. And we call it okay. And it says in the book of Isaiah, 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are right. Why does it say that in the book of Isaiah? Because the God who pursues is reaching out to the people who have done this. He still loves them. Verse 9, another conditional clause. The route to recovering from self-deception back to self-awareness is in if we confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us again, ongoing, from all unrighteousness. The word confess in this passage there are different words for confess used in the New Testament, but this word is the word homologao. Does that sound in any way familiar to you? When a seminarian goes to seminary, they're going to take a course on how to preach the Bible. The course is called homiletics. It literally means to say the same thing. The goal of the pastor is as best they can, they want to say what the Bible says. I don't know about you, once in a while I've heard pastors get up and say, I'm not telling you this, this is the word of God. You know what? I don't think they realize what they're doing. No, you gave me your best interpretation of it. And I hope when I hear you preach on that passage 10 years from now, you'll be able to go a little deeper. Your word was not equal to the word of God. It was an interpretation of the word of God. And you extended the doctrine of inerrancy to your interpretation. It's kind of a borderline blasphemy. I wouldn't call it blasphemy because I don't think they're aware they're doing it. But the word homiletics basically means... The pastor is going to get up and do the best they can. Pastors are as fallen. The pastors could have been included in that recovery group we talked about. They're trying to serve their people. They're praying, hopefully, as they prepare. They're studying diligently, doing due diligence to the text, and they're going to give you the best they can from that text and encourage you by it, I hope. But nevertheless, the word homologao means to say the same thing. When I'm involved in confession, what am I doing? I'm coming into the realm of self-awareness and realizing I'm messed up. I see the lapses in my life. I don't even see all of them. But I see enough of them in that moment to come to God with them and enter into self-awareness and say, Lord, speak to me. Come to me. I confess this to you. And you can be confident that the God who pursues will meet you at that place of honesty because he wants to build in you Something that looks more and more like the Lord Jesus. And I don't know about you, but if God wants to make me more like Christ, he's got a lot of work to do. And confession becomes this opportunity for self-awareness. And then it goes on to say in that last verse, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Note the downward decline. If we walk in darkness, we lie. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and we come to a state where we blame God for our calamities. Evil and deception is vociferous. What does vociferous mean? Nuclear fission. It proliferates. And if we leave this unchecked in our life and don't meet the God who's pursuing us, it will have horrible effects into spiritual blindness. But look at the ascent the upward possibilities. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
and the assurance that his blood cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, we discover daily his faithfulness to forgive and perpetually to cleanse. This is the God who pursues us. This is the greatest story ever told. It is relevant to where we're living each day. And if your life is touched by it, it seems to me you're going to want to go out and live in the light of it. So as he pursued you, you will want to be his agent of pursuit to those around you. Let me end with a story. There were two young men I knew years ago, Billy and Bruce. They were brothers. Uh, Billy, Billy, I love them. I love these two guys. I love Billy, I think, more than Bruce even. Billy was always in trouble. He, he, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, an evil guy. He was just mischievous, and he always got caught. Uh, he wasn't real interested in the academic life. Before I met him in Wheaton, Illinois, he had lived for a while down uh, in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana. And after he graduated from high school, rather than going to college, he went down to Baton Rouge, and he started operating a bait tank on a pier off of Lake Pontchartrain. While he was there for a couple of years, he was the older of the two brothers, he decided to come back to Wheaton, thought maybe he'd go to college. His younger brother, Bruce, had graduated from high school and was going to go to Wheaton College with his girlfriend. It looked like they, those two were going to probably get married one day. But Billy comes back, and his folks say he's been living on his own for two years. He doesn't have to declare us as his, uh, that he's dependent upon us. Could he stay with you for the summer so that he could apply for uh, loans, student loans, on his own uh, income rather than appealing to ours? And I said, sure, he could stay. All he has to do is mow the lawn once a week. He'd babysit sometimes. He'd have to change the diapers on the kids and so on. But I fell more deeply in love with Billy than before. And he's a struggler. And he's trying to see if he can grow. He goes to Taylor University. His brother, Bruce, was going to go to Wheaton. But Bruce decided to go to Taylor to be with his brother, Billy, to encourage him. And Bruce's girlfriend broke up with him over it cost him. But Bruce wanted to follow Jesus, the Christ who pursues, the God who pursues, and he goes to Taylor. Every time Billy would come home, we'd go for breakfast together. He drove a little Triumph TR3 that was falling apart. It seemed like there were pieces falling off of it all the time. He came home for spring break, and I said, come on, Billy, let's go get a bite to eat. We get to the restaurant. He comes around to my side because he couldn't get out from the inside of the car. He has to get a screwdriver and open the door, and I get out. And as soon as I get out, the first thing he says to me is, Jerry, I love Jesus now. I go, wow, Billy, what happened? I said, Bruce. Bruce pursued me. And Bruce encouraged me. And Bruce loved me in a way that I could see tangibly with my hands and hear with my ears about God's love. And I love him now. We had a great breakfast celebrating. He went back to Taylor after spring break. Two weeks later, he was working under that car. The jack slipped and he was killed. And he left in love with Jesus to go meet Jesus. I remember talking to Bruce. I still see Bruce with some frequency. And I'd say to him, Bruce, 
You lost a lot pursuing your brother. Was it worth it? He says, yeah, it was worth it. To us, to each of you, the love that pursues you, is it worth it? Oh, yeah. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We don't love you very well, but we are so grateful that you make it so easy for us to love you at all. Thank you. For Christ's sake, amen.